welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. I'd like to welcome Professor Jerome Loveland with us today. Uh, Professor Loveland's CV is too long, it would take the whole podcast, but essentially he's the academic head of pediatric surgery at the Witwatersrand University in Johannesburg. And he's also the chief surgeon for pediatric surgery at Chris Hardy Barry Gwyneth Hospital. Uh, the Barry Gwyneth Hospital is the biggest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere and the fourth biggest hospital in the world. So with that obviously comes a massive amount of experience and exposure in pediatric surgery and we're lucky to have him with us today. Welcome, Jerome. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Jerome, um, can you, we're obviously going to talk about portal hypertension today. Can you maybe give us an overview of the vascular system that supplies and drains the liver? Yeah, so I thought uh, um, we can deal with the uh, venous drainage first. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got three, three hepatic veins that, that drain the liver into the IVC. But uh, jokes aside, so I think essentially there's two vascular systems that supply the liver. So obviously there's the hepatic arterial system, which supplies 30% of the vascular volume to the liver. Um, but 50% of the oxygenation. Um, And that predominantly, in fact, is the predominant vascular supply to the biliary system. And then there's the portal venous system, which provides approximately 70 to 75% of volume and also contributes equally in terms of oxygenation. Obviously, both of those systems come together um, or run in the the portal triads with the bile ducts, and that blood then enters the sinusoids, gets uh, dealt with by hepatocytes and Kupfer cells and then drains into the central vein and then obviously out into the hepatic veins as as previously discussed and into the IVC. Okay, cool. So it's quite a complex blood supply but uh, we'll obviously work our way through the issues as the day goes on. Right. right. I mean, just to, sorry, I mean to to expand a little, just in terms of that portal system. Mm. So I think the, the structure of how the portal vein comes about is important. Um, the sort of classic predominant veins that come into a confluence are the superior mesenteric vein and the splenic vein. Um, and the other important, ve- important veins are the umbilical vein and the left coronary or the coronary or left gastric vein and inferior mesenteric vein. And that, if you understand that portal venous anatomy, it's a lot easier to understand portal hypertension and where it manifests in terms of its signs and symptoms. Yeah, it just proves that obviously anatomy and knowing your anatomy is always important, especially as a surgeon. So, I mean, we're going to talk about portal hypertension. What what is some of the pathophysiology behind portal hypertension? So I think it depends on the cause. And I mean, it's convenient just in terms of thinking about it to understand on an adult basis the, of how portal hypertension comes about. So you can have post-sinusoidal portal hypertension, and a very good example of that is Bud Chiari syndrome or hepatic venous outflow obstruction. Um, sin- obstruction that happens at the level of the sinusoid. Um, I think biliary atresia and, and bilharzia are very good examples of that. And then there's pre-sinusoidal, um, and a good example of that is extrahepatic portal hypertension. But essentially, I think the, the predominant feature behind all of those is a hypertensive phenomenon that gets caused within the portal veins that then goes on to manifest um, in a variety of, of clinical, clinical situations. Looking specifically at 
pediatrics and pediatric surgery, if you look at our practice, the two predominant conditions that we see in terms of intrahepatic disease are biliary atresia, and in terms of extrahepatic disease are portal vein thrombosis. Okay, and then the etiology behind portal vein thrombosis, I mean, usually it's idiopathic, or do you think it's associated to umbilical veins? So I think if you look at our, exper- our experience, it's the predominant cause is actually is idiopathic, um, but certainly a percentage of cases are caused by neonatal umbilical vein catheterization. Um, a number of causes, a number of cases are caused by um, local injury and irritation to the portal vein or splenic vein outside of umbilical catheters, so trauma, pancreatitis, okay. um, and then. And we don't see many of these at all, but can sort of hypercoagulable states um, do contribute in a very small percentage of cases. Uh, how do we define portal hypertension? Well, theoretically, you, there's two ways, I think. I mean, you can look at the direct measurement or indirect measurement of portal venous pressure. So that should generally be approximately 5 millimetres of mercury, and a pressure above 10 millimetres of mercury is definitive for portal hypertension. That said, we don't certainly, um, in our institution, measure portal portal pressure um, regularly, and we rely more on the clinical features of portal hypertension to to make the diagnosis. Yeah, I think, as you say, measuring is obviously technically a bit more of a challenge and the way we do it is probably not very accurate. I mean, what are the clinical features that you look for that give you an indication that the patient has got portal hypertension? Any kids, I mean, obviously. So I think, obviously, the earliest manifestation is, is of an upper GRT bleed. So if you've got clinical suspicion of portal hypertension, um, it's well documented that upper, upper intestinal endoscopy, looking for varices, is the best way to document variceal manifestations of portal hypertension, um, obviously ascites. Um, failure to thrive is, in fact, a significant symptom of portal hypertension in children. And then, obviously, if you're looking at an intrahepatic cause, one needs to... Con- or, or, in fact, extrahepatic. So hepatic encephalopathy, as your portal hypertension progresses, is another confirmatory sign. Um, do you ever see any splenic... Things? I mean, absolutely, I how absolutely. How common is hypersplenism in portal hypertension, or is it rather just the spleen gets bigger? Or splenomegaly, we see commonly. Um, in the, of those patients, about twenty-five percent will will manifest with hypersplenism. So again, it goes to the territory of your portal hypertension. So if you're looking at again your coronary veins, you're going to see varices. It's going to transmit through the, your splenic territory as splenomegaly and, and hypersplenism. Um, rectal varices in the distribution of the inferior mesenteric vein and similarly ascites. Okay, yeah, so I was actually going to ask you what those different shunts are. So maybe just quickly clarify for us. You said so there's esophageal varices, the coronary vein, the crust of the spleen, the umbilical vein, and then rectal varices. Right, Is that right? Predominantly, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so, I mean, you've mentioned a little bit uh, in terms of classifying the causes of portal hypertension, and we've spoken a little bit about you know, what the t- particular, you know, common things we see. And you've said that in our practice, probably biliary atresia is the most common thing. If you look at um, the recent Bovino 6 guidelines, 
they, they document the fact that in the developing world, 60% of causes of portal hypertension are due to extrahepatic venous obstruction, as opposed to in the developed world, where that number is 20%. Our experience is actually significantly different to that, and we would have to say that the majority of our patients are actually patients with biliary atresia, um, and probably the vast minority of patients that present with extrahepatic portal vein obstruction. Now, whether that's a manifestation of the fact that we're missing a lot of those patients with extrahepatic vein obstruction, perhaps it's a manifestation that not a, many of those neonates actually don't you know, go on to manifest in, in the long term, I don't know. But certainly our spectrum of disease is, is more consistent with the developed world, which is interesting. Do you think it's related to an infectious etiology in the third world more commonly, or what? The fact that we don't see in South Africa the same sort of percentages as described in the guidelines. I or think do you I, think it's just that we're just not seeing it, and those kids are dying, or we just? I think they're dying. It? I think the kids are probably dying as, as neonates, which accounts for a lot of them. And I think then we're probably missing a lot of them, and that get managed for varices in the periphery. You know, may may live, may die, but they aren't actually being referred to tertiary centres for definitive management. Um, so, I mean, we've spoken about the clinical sort of picture of kids with portal hypertension, and you've mentioned briefly endoscopy looking for esophageal varices. <clears throat> what are some of the common areas of workup that we do for patients with suspected portal hypertension? Okay, so I think it, uh, you need to divide it up around your investigation of the portal hypertension and on, as your sort of first port of call and your second port of call is going to be working them, them up for an intervention. Okay. So you need to look at the liver. I think that's, that's important. Inherent liver function, synthetic function. I mean, you look at the albumin and how the liver utilizes protein. Just something of note is that what you'll always find in, uh, in these patients is that their protein C, protein S, factor 5 and factor 7 actually are, are always low, particularly in your extrahepatic obstruction. And you mustn't be caught out and diagnose those patients as having, as having hypercoagulable states. In fact, that's just a man manifestation of decreased portal flow and decreased synthesis. So if you're going to look for those hypercoagulable states, you should in fact rather send those patients for genetic testing as a, as a separate thing. Obviously a full blood count is important, um, so we've said how, how common splenomegaly is, um, but 25% of your patients are going to present with pancytopenia, leukopenia, thrombocytopenia, and that's obviously important in your diagnosis. INR is, is something that you should do. Um, once again, it's it's, it's not very reliable, and may, you may manifest with those patients having a slightly elevated INR um, purely on the basis of decreased portal flow. Ultrasound, very important um, from, from both aspects, from a workup aspect of disease and working up from a surgical perspective. And I think we also have a very low threshold to do a liver biopsy. Um, certainly, if you've got an intrahepatic cause, one wants to categorize the degree of hepatic dysfunction. Um, and again, from an extrahepatic obstruction perspective, it is good to document that your liver is essentially normal. 
Moving on from, I think that probably covers the, the bulk of your, in, your causative agents. There's, there's quite a nice classification of the degree of portal hypertension that they brought out in these Bovino 6 guidelines. And essentially they, they, they categorized them of, as stages one to four. So stage one is evidence of uncomplicated portal hypertension. Stage two, and the stages two and three are all defined by failure to thrive, in fact. So stage two is failure to thrive with uncomplicated portal hypertension. Stage three is failure to thrive in the presence of either ascites or bleeding. And stage four is failure to thrive with both bleeding and ascites. So it's quite a nice way of compartmentalizing your patient. It doesn't have a I mean, it does prognosticate, and there's no figures that anybody can give, but it's a very nice way of compartmentalizing your patients in terms of urgency of intervention. Okay, oh, that's quite a nice, nice way to look at it and to have enough idea where you're going in terms of follow-up for patients as well. Mm, 100%. Cool. Um, what are some of the medical management strategies for managing patients with portal hypertension? I mean, obviously, as surgeons, we get involved in the surgical, the technical aspect of it, but... What are some of the medical things that uh, you know, physicians initiate when they realise patients are heading towards critical portal hypertension? So I think it's important to divide your management up into management of an acute bleed and long-term management. So let, let's deal with management of an acute bleed, okay. if, if you're good with that. Yeah. So, I don't think we need to re-educate anybody, but the resuscitative phase is critically important, and we're not going to go into APLS, PALS, etc. But obviously these kids need good vascular access, and they need to have their initial intravascular volume repleted. That said, um, it's important to not over-resuscitate them, and the guidelines suggest that they should be transfused to an HB of about 8 unless there's any other associated cardiac issue, etc., that mandates that you drive it higher. Um, over-resuscitating these kids is, um, will, will increase their morbidity. So, number one, resuscitation is important. There, there's no documented benefit, in fact, to an NG tube, um, just to put it out there. Um, and then it's to start them on vasoactive agents. So the, the sort of commonly used ones, octreotide, somatostatin, terlipressin, and those have got a very well-documented effect in terms of ablating bleeding. Antibiotics are important, um, really just to minimise the risk of infection. Um, that said, they, they're not mandatory, and ultimately, whilst we'll start most of these kids on an antibiotic, um, within 24 to 48 hours, they should be culture-directed. Um, we'll always start these kids on a proton pump inhibitor, um, and I guess that's historical. There's no good evidence for it, um, and that's on the basis that many of these bleeds are actually non-variceal, non although that data is extrapolated from the, from the adult population. And then the next important thing is to scope them. So once they have been resuscitated and initiated on their vasoactive agent, they should be taken to theatre, ideally within 24 hours, to ban those varices um, as necessary. All right. Um, just before we get there, is there any role for fresh frozen plasma in the acute 
uh, treatment of these patients? Or, I mean, is it done, do you give it routinely or just once you've seen the clotting profile? So it's, it's best to look at the clotting profile. In fact, the, the platelets are, are probably a better director, so significant thrombocytopenia um, will mandate platelets. But there seems to be a trend away from overutilizing FFP. It, I know it's everybody's go-to, go-to modality, but the current literature seems to suggest that one shouldn't be over-vigorous with the use of FFP. All right, and then you mentioned obviously trying to go to theatre as soon as possible for endoscopy once the patient has been stabilised. I mean, in kids that are unstable and you never seem to get on top of things, is there any benefit in using Senstock and Blakemore tubes these days? Well, I'm going to say no. So I think your first port of call is always to go to theatre to scope by an experienced endoscopist in an attempt to control control that hemorrhage and if at all possible it's well proven now that variceal banding is superior to injection sclerotherapy going back to and just to add that if you have a second bleed or an ongoing bleed after that again the guidelines suggest that you return to theater and try and manage those varices endoscopically again in terms of the sing stock and blakemore tube Personally, I've never been a fan of them. Um, they're a bridge to other defini- or to definitive care where all other interventions to stop your bleeding have failed. Um, it's a tube that gets shoved down the esophagus. It's uh, got two balloons. It's got an esophageal balloon and a gastric balloon. So by all accounts, you shove, this tube, you, you shove the tube down and inflate the gastric component, putting traction on the end of your tube. And that is described to staunch the bleeding. Failing that, while you're preparing your patient for the mortuary, you can inflate the esophageal component of the balloon to, to add further um, impetus to your intervention. But certainly, again, the latest guidelines really um, very clearly state that very few people use them and that they really are a bridge to any other intervention that's, that you deem possible. That said, it's not something that you can put down a patient in the ward, and if you're going to use them, they really should be used in the pediatric intensive care environment after all of the other medical treatments have been instituted. Okay, great. Um, You said that obviously banding at endoscopy has now become really the treatment of choice for these patients you know, there's still some people that um, suggest injection in very small young kids under about 10 kilograms. You know, we always have issues getting the drugs to inject. Um, have you had much experience in injecting these kids, or do you literally try and ban everybody regardless of their size? So I try and ban everybody regardless of size. I think the data is very clear now that variceal banding is significantly superior to injection sclerotherapy. But, I mean... As we know, certainly at our institution, um, equipment issues can prevail. And for those smaller kids, so yes, less than 8, 9, 10 kilograms, um, we have been forced to inject them preferentially. And have you, did you had any experience in injecting gastric varices with uh, cyanoacrylate or superglue? So I haven't actually. I mean, I, I know it's now described as... Uh, the, in adults as, as the best option of, of managing gastric varices. I must say that 
we've had a very low incidence of bleeding gastric varices in our pediatric population. And yeah, so personally, I, I've had very little experience. But again, the literature is very clear that, in fact, gastric varices are very seldom the, um, the culprit when it comes to bleed, these bleeds in kids. Yeah, probably just as well, because the guys tend to superglue their scopes and yeah. <laughs> makes the next scope more challenging. Very expensive. <laughs> Um, so there's obviously lots of other alternatives, you know, and stepwise progression before we get to shunts. Um, you know, there's endoscopic uh, treatments. Um, have you ever done or found any use for tips or transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunting in kids? Or is it really only as a temporary thing done in adults? So we've got more experience with our adults population. And certainly locally, we've got no experience with TIPS in the pediatric age group. I think one, one caveat that you must always remember, and, and, well, that you must always remember, is that in patients that have got extrahepatic portal vein obstruction because of their reduced portal flow, in fact, TIPS is contraindicated, and we know that those patients are going to occlude those shunts very early, and um, the TIPS may have a negative effect on your ability to explore the patient um, with a view to doing a, a mesoportal shunt subsequently. So, so that's an absolute no-no. Okay. I see that uh, in Europe, um, some centres are starting to use TIPS a little more aggressively in patients with, intra, with an intrahepatic origin of their portal hypertension, uh, specifically biliary atresia, actually. Um, but that's very much as a bridge to other interventions and particularly to transplantation. The problem with TIPS in kids has been the fact that the shunts that are available are relatively small in diameter and at risk of occlusion very early on. Um, that said, they are starting to develop better covered stents now that have got improved patency rates. But I think it's, it's still also very clear that the, well, the, the role of TIPS is defined to a very select subgroup of patients at centres that have got the expertise and volumes to, to carry them out. I think for the, for the general management of these kids, it's probably not an option. Okay. So obviously not every kid that develops portal hypertension needs some kind of shunt surgery. I mean, at what stage would you consider considering a patient for shunt surgery? So I think it depends on the cause. So if you look at the other intrahepatic conditions that cause cirrhosis and portal hypertension. So let's take cystic fibrosis as an example, or polycystic kidney disease as an example. The spectrum of how those patients present is quite varied. Some patients will present with devastating cirrhosis, um, portal hypertension in combination with failure to thrive, poor synthetic function, and those patients are pure candidates for liver transplantation. But there certainly are a group of those patients that will retain actually fairly good inherent hepatic function, but will present predominantly with symptoms of portal hypertension. And uh, we've shunted quite a few of those patients, actually, and they've done, done very well. Their portal hypertension has been managed, 
um, they've become asymptomatic and they've gone on you know, for, for many years now to lead normal lives you know, without any further intervention, obviously the next potential step would be, would be transplantation. So that group of patients I think you've got to are separate and you've got to individualise them and not favour shunt over transplantation or transplantation over shunt. You've got to do what's, what's indicated best. The next category of patients are the patients that present with extrahepatic portal vein obstruction. And they're a difficult, well, they're not a difficult group of patients, but they're a controversial group of patients. I think there's no doubt that patients that are symptomatic will warrant a shunt, um, but there's lots and lots of very good evidence now that doing a prophylactic, not a prophylactic, but a preemptive shunt on those patients, and particularly a Rex or mesoportal shunt, improves those patients' outcomes in the long term. So it prevents the development of symptomatic variceal portal hypertension and variceal bleeding, um, but it also has an impact on the more subtle secondary outcomes in terms of reversing subtle encephalopathy, improving neurological outcomes when it comes to school, you know, higher function at school. And there's a significant drive now from high volume centers to shunt those pa patients specifically with the mesoportal shunt early. All right, so I mean, you've obviously mentioned a couple of different shunt options, you know, the rec shunt, uh, the mesoportal shunts, and so on. I've always been a little bit confused about the hundreds of different options in terms of shunts, and there's selective, non-selective, partially selective, et cetera, et cetera. Can you give us just some guideline in terms of what the difference is between the different shunts, and then we'll chat a bit more about that after. So I've, I was also confused for, for a long time, certainly while I was training and in my, my early years. For me, I, I guess it's probably simpler now because I deal predominantly with children uh, with portal hypertension, but there's three, three shunts, three broad shunt options. So the first is to, and it depends what your predominant symptoms are. So if your predominant symptoms are esophageal varices and, and bleeding esophageal varices, you need to decompress your left upper quadrant. For that, you've got, you've got three potential options. The, you can re-establish normal hepatic flow, so normal physiological hepatic flow, by doing a rex or a mesoportal shunt. Alternately, you can do a selective shunt where you decompress the splenic vein and by doing a distal splenorenal shunt. And failing any of those options, you can do a central non-selective shunt by doing a shunt from your superior mesenteric vein to your vena cava, so a mesocaval shunt. I have, I think that's your last option. So I, looking at the other two, I have swung in favor from initially doing predominantly mesoportal shunts. I then moved to doing splenorenal shunts predominantly. And, and that was, I guess, perhaps incorrectly driven by the relative simplicity and lack of complexity of doing that shunt. It's, you know, you, you go into your lesser sac, you take down your, spleen, your splenic vein and you pop it onto your, your renal vein. Um, it's, a, it's 
a lot simpler in steps than your meso portal shunt. But as I've developed my own sort of feeling for, for these diseases, and as the latest guidelines have evolved, I must say I'm swinging back to doing primarily a mesoportal shunt as my primary operation. Um, the, you know, the advantage, it's interesting. Um, we don't have as good uh, interventional radiology service, um, certainly at, at Barragwanath Hospital. But if you read the, read the latest reports out of, out of Europe, you know, still in those mesoportal shunts, 15% of them need interventional radiology to balloon a stenosis um, and anastomosis going forward. Mm. But the nice thing about a mesoportal shunt is that you can, you can do that. If, again, if a mesoportal shunt eventually does fall apart, occlude, and it's not salvageable, you can still fall back on doing a splenorenal shunt. The reverse generally isn't true. It's, it's a lot more difficult to salvage the situation once you've taken your splenic vein down, um, and then going and doing a mesoportal isn't quite as easy. Yeah, and I mean, obviously this argument is only for pre-hepatic causes of portal hypertension. Now, otherwise, you know, the mesoportal shunt is not really going to do anything for your Absolutely, your yeah, of course, of course. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, what's some of the imaging that you would require prior to debating which shunt to do and deciding which shunt is a viable option for these kids? Right. So we'll always start with an ultrasound. And uh, an, an ultrasound should, should, in the vast majority of cases, be able to show you what's going with your, on with your portal vein. And it should be able to tell you, hopefully, that your portal, left portal vein is patent. But, but often, truth be told, that's not possible. So our next step is to do, to, is to do a high-quality CT scan. And again, that, uh, that will often give you enough information. Failing that, and, and something that I always favor doing, is to do a wedged hepatic retrograde porto portogram. Um, and that really gives you a very good picture of your left portal vein um, to see whether it's, whether it's patent or not. And most of these patients, in fact, that have got extra hepatic portal vein obstruction, 95% of them do have a utilizable left portal vein. Mm-hmm. We have become more or are becoming more aggressive, though, in terms of just exploring those patients on the table now. And, you know, you can do a, you can do a portogram on the table by cannulating the umbilical vein, injecting some contrast, and, and seeing what the left side of the liver looks like. Yeah, so I suppose these kids have developed portal hypertension. Obviously, that vein opens up as one of the, you know, shunts, as it were the portosystemic shunts that naturally develop. So, yeah, it's a good thing to be able to utilize on table. Right, you can utilize it on table. I mean, what, what they do also develop, though, is because of um, relatively poor flow and because for, for, or poor flow for such a long period of time, often what happens is that the, the intrapatic portal vein isn't stenosed or thrombosed, but it actually becomes hyperplastic from disuse, and that becomes actually a predominant, the predominant reason for not being able to utilize it. Because um, the other thing we need to obviously do is image the neck. Um, right. So, so if you look at the criteria for doing a rec shunt, you, you want to have two patent internal jugular veins. So uh, I, I, will prefer, I always preferentially take the left vein so that you, you keep the, the right vein, obviously for, for drainage of the head and neck, but also keeping the right vein makes, gives you a much more direct route for all of your access procedures should you require them. 
Um, so I, I'll routinely consent to take the um, left internal jugular vein. And I think practically you must be judicious. Don't try and be clever. You know, make a long sternocleidomastoid incision and make sure that you harvest an appropriate length of vein. Um, the last thing you want is to be, is to be found short. That said, in, in my personal experience, um, I haven't been found short. You know, if you make sure that you take enough, you mobilize it adequately, you'll, you'll have enough length. Um, then you're going to move down to, I mean, you will have explored your abdomen prior to that, but I think the important part of exploring the abdomen is to follow that umbilical vein down to the retrocessus. I think one mistake that people make is, is, to, is to not divide the, into the retrocessus um, fully, and you will usually find a bridge of liver that crosses, that crosses over that umbilical vein. And I would always encourage people to be aggressive in dividing that hepatic parenchyma. And in fact, I've taken to, and in fact, I do this in my CAS eyes as well, is to, is to take a big chunk of that hepatic parenchyma out so that it really optimizes your access to that intrahepatic portion of the left portal vein. Um, once you've done that, you can follow your umbilical vein down. You can take, you know, there's always a couple of direct branches and that go into segment four, um, four and three, and you can take those down. It really gives you good mobility so that you aren't, and then do your venotomy, and, and you'll find that you've got really good access for a, for a good, comfortable venous anastomosis. No, and then obviously you, must, you just make sure that you root your, your conduits um, appropriately, uh, you know, directly to, to your superior mesenteric vein. You, that'll be your subsequent anastomosis. Make sure you do a nice meticulous um, 7-0 proline anastomosis. And, uh, yeah, Bob's your uncle. Cool. Just remember which way around the vein goes. And remember which way around the vein goes. <laughs> Yeah, I see some guys say that you should actually cut that wedge out the liver because they reckon one of the causes of getting obstruction in your shunt is actually that liver from the rectocystis impinging on it. Mm, and absolutely. that's why some people recommend you do that as a routine. Uh, what, what other sort of post-operative management do you do for these kids post-shunt? Do you put them on anticoagulation? What, what, how do you manage these kids acutely and then long-term? Right, so, so in the absence of a defined hypercalculable state, uh, they all go into aspirin for, for a month. Or, and some, some units, in fact, will use it for longer, for three months. So, so aspirin for a month. If they've got a routine use of post-operative ultrasound, I think is important. And we will always um, do an ultrasound on day one post-operatively and at least the day before, day before discharge. We don't have a lot of interventional experience with these. Um, I mean, I must say our patency rates are good, and, and in excess of 80% of our patients have got a patent shunt at six months, and we've looked at that very carefully. Uh, that said, you know, they aren't without their issues. Um, we would, if there's very early occlusion of the shunt, we'll go back, you know, in the first day or two and uh, see if we can correct any... I mean, that has to be a technical factor and correct any technical issues related to the shunt. Um, jealously, looking at, you know, these big European centres, um, they, they've got exceptional interventional radiology. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they pick up, you know, anastomotic stenosis or um, intrapatic hyperplastic lesions distal to the shunt... 
um, you know, 15% of them will require those to be addressed and will ensure longer-term patency of the shunt. If you do have a hypercoagulable, documented hypercoagulable state, then we'll start the patients on formal anticoagulation, the low molecular weight heparin, and probably for three months, three to six months, and then again convert them onto aspirin. And those patients, patients would probably require um, lifelong aspirin to, uh, as anticoagulation. Apart from shunt occlusion, are there any other complications one needs to be aware of post-shunt surgery? You do, yes, and the recent experience springs immediately to mind. But I mean, I think you've got to, you, you've got to consent your patients completely and honestly. And I think in everybody's hands, there's an incidence of shunt thrombosis. And you need, I mean, that needs to be put out there up front. Um, they, they are in, in the best hands with the best suture material and the best technique. A percentage of these shunts are going to thrombose. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, that's predominantly in the long term, but, but they do occur acutely. Um, there's a risk of bleeding afterwards. Uh, there's a risk of lymph leak. I mean, I've recently had a very difficult patient after a spinorenal shunt that developed a horrendous um, retroperitoneal lymph leak that you know, ultimately settled, but uh, you know, gave me a lot of grey hair. And that can be a life-threatening condition. So I think you've got to you've got to um, be um, very upfront with your patients about these things. And ascites. I mean, after any of these shunts, a lot of the patients will develop a degree of ascites of you know, non-lymphatic ascites, and and that often requires some medical management. So uh, you know, patients will or parents will often get very concerned by the fact that their kids get a little bit of a distended abdomen a few days afterwards, and they need, they need to be aware that you know, it's secondary to taking down a lot of those uh, physiological shunts that have developed and, and increases some port, or causes some portal hypertension in other areas. Yeah. Um, you briefly mentioned transplantation as an option for some of these kids, and obviously the intrahepatic causes sort of spring to mind as ideal candidates for liver transplantation. Um, which would you consider transplantation in all kids with portal hypertension or only those with really intrinsic liver abnormalities or issues like biliary atresia, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think, remember that, in, I mean, absolutely. So your intrinsic conditions and those patients that warrant transplantation as their primary cause are, you know, must be transplanted. That said, remember that transplantation isn't a, isn't a benign condition. So in your patients specifically with extrapatic obstruction, um, why do you want to replace a liver that's working well with another liver that's working well and then add all the potential morbidity of uh, immunosuppression and surgical morbidity to those patients? Yeah. That said, I think every now and then a, a patient will arrive that you are unable to control their portal hypertension from, you know, by, any, by any means and one or two of them may ultimately benefit from transplantation. Remember, though, that you've got to get portal venous inflow for, those, you know, for that new liver, and, uh, which is often easier said than done. And if you can get portal venous inflow, you know, there's often a shunt option that you can apply. So anyway, so I think the rule is that you know, patients with extrapatic obstruction are co- almost contraindicated to, to transplantation. Your intrahepatic conditions 
you've got to balance you know, whether, what the predominant symptom is. If it's cirrhosis, um, poor synthetic function, failure to thrive with poor hypertension, doing a shunt is, is well, it's probably going to make your patient sicker anyway, but is also contraindicated and that patient needs liver transplant. Um, that small group that we've discussed where the portal hypertension predominates over the other you know, hepatic issues, one will consider um, shunting as a, probably as a bridge to transplantation. All right, thanks. Um, Joe, I think you've highlighted many different aspects of portal hypertension for us and one of the things that's really stuck in my mind is how much of a multidisciplinary condition this is with the physicians and the surgeons, transplant surgeons, radiologists, uh, you know, all being a part of the management of these particular patients. Uh, do you have any take-home messages you want to leave with anybody with regards to portal hypertension? So I think if, if I'm going to use our environment as, as, as the example, I think we we miss optimally, optimally managing a huge percentage of our patients because people don't think that these patients have an outlook. And massive variceal hemorrhage in, in our setting is looked upon very nihilistically. You know, often these patients, tragically, are put in the corner to die. Um, I think we need to embrace the fact that they need to be resuscitated and transferred to a tertiary referral centre as soon as possible where we can, you know, get at them as a team and, and, and treat them, you know, because so many of these conditions are absolutely treatable. You know, whether it's biliary atresia that has portal hypertension and failure to thrive and needs a liver transplant, or whether it's a 10-kilogram kid with portal vein thrombosis, and that, that's asymptomatic mm-hmm. at this stage. But we need to bring those kids into our own high-volume centre where we've got the expertise to treat them and, and give them an opportunity to survive and become meaningful members of society. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's, it comes up again and again. I mean, the truth is that you know, every kid deserves a chance, and I think it's great that you've created this environment where that's becoming more and more of a reality. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, Andrew. Very kind words. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for your time and thanks for joining us. We appreciate your input. Good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week. <laughs>